A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When we think of Western philosophers who pondered questions about the good life, we typically think of the classical era of Greece and the likes of Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. But my guests would say that the poets and philosophers who came out of the preceding period, Greece's Iron Age, also have something to say about the nature of existence. Adam Nicholson is the author of How to Be, Life Lessons from the Early Greeks. Today on the show, Adam takes us on a tour of Iron Age Greece and how these seafaring people set the stage for our modern sense of self. Adam makes the case that the early Greeks had what he calls a harbor mindset, which lent them a mentality centered on fluidity and transience. We discuss how Odysseus exemplifies this harbor mindset and how a group of lesser-known pre-Socratic philosophers define life through a lens of change and contradiction. Adam then explains how a mystical guru named Pythagoras paved the way for Greek thinkers like Plato and Aristotle and the rise of cooperative civility. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash howtobe. All right, Adam Nicholson, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. So we had you on last year to talk about your book, Why Homer Matters, where we explore Homer, you know, the great epic poet uh, and his works, The Iliad and the Odyssey, and what we can learn from him. You got a new book out called How to Be, Life Lessons from the Early Greeks. And in this book, you explore the intellectual development of the Iron Age Greeks and then how their geography influenced their philosophical outlook on life. And I think when we typically think of the ancient Greeks, I think we typically think of Greeks living in the classical era. We think of Plato and Aristotle, but your book goes further back into Greek history. So what's the time period that you explored in your book? Well, this book really is a successor to that uh, one I wrote about Homer. It, It takes on where Homer leaves off. And so Conventionally, people date Homer nowadays to about 750 BC, 720 BC, something like that. And Homer lives just at the beginning of this revolution in thought and life that represents the beginning of what is conventionally called the Archaic Age in Greece, stretching from then about 700 to really about 500, 470 when you could say the classical age begins. I mean, these these are artificial divisions and artificial 
uh, categorizations. Obviously, it's a continuous, evolving process. But there is something unique about this age, known as the pre-Socratic age of philosophy, i.e. the age before Socrates, and filled with a series of really intriguing thinkers, almost philosophers, almost poets. Many of them wrote in poetry, shaman-like figures in some ways, not unlike even prophets, Hebrew prophets on the other side of the Mediterranean in Israel. And it's absolutely filled with a sense of beginnings of a new way of thinking about things and evolving away from the Homeric universe that we talked about last time of, you know, a terrible sense of destiny, of divinely inspired destiny controlling the nature of human life and instead beginning to say, how can I make my life good I do not depend on the divine. I can think myself or how to make a good society, how to have a good self, how to live well according to my own choices. And I think that that's what's extraordinary about this moment, that it that appeals to many, many modern questions, many of the modern questions which say, you know, are we really satisfied with the inherited answers? Are we not in a kind of very fluid and in many ways troubling time that demands of us that we think, what is it to be? You know, what is it to be good? What is it to conceive of oneself as something distinct in the world? And so there's a curiously powerful connection for me Anyway, between now and then, and these seem very arcane, very distant people 2,700 years ago, and yet their concerns are still ours, and that's really what intrigued me about them. Yeah, I was intrigued by that too, as you described these different philosophers during this period, was it seemed both foreign, but at the same time very familiar. I, I agree, both foreign and familiar, because... You know, so much of our intellectual inheritance is really about, it seems to me, the kind of imposition of certainties, the need to accept, for example, the kind of great Platonic vision that things of value are not in this world, but in another world or in a world distinct from this one, lying behind and above this one, and that this world that we're in now may be interesting scientifically and materially. You know, you can investigate its stuff, but the place of value is somehow not here. And I've always really (laughs) resented that idea that our life here is somehow second rate compared with the life that might be lived elsewhere or is being lived elsewhere in heaven or whatever you want to call it. And so I think that this pre-Platonic, pre-Socratic understanding that this world is the one to attend to in a way beyond the scientific, not only about its material structure, but about how we are in it, is, you know, hugely valuable and something of a kind of, almost I feel like saying an ally in a difficult time. You know, here are people who have, at the very beginning of 
freedom uh, in some way, of intellectual freedom. I mean, this is not a democratic world we're discussing, so it's not as if there is universal liberty going on. It's a very, very strictly run oligarchic world, actually, just a, f- a few people telling other people what to do. But those few people are thinking hard, and uh, it's it's extraordinarily refreshing. It's like a kind of great surge of newness. It's not a surge of oldness, and exciting for that. Yeah, so it sounds like this period is a transition period where you start seeing the development of we call it agency in the Greek mindset, the sense of self that I'm an individual, that I'm not just buffeted by my environment. That is going on, but there's a sense that I can do something about it. Yes, it is. It's definitely transitional. And and an intriguing thing that I I discussed this in, in the book is that there is already a transition visible within Homer between the two Homeric poems. You know, if the Iliad is really a poem about the imprisonment of destiny, of destiny shutting you into a kind of frame of unaddressable fate, then the Odyssey is really about choice. How can you navigate a world? How can you find your way out through all the troubles and turmoil of existence. And there's a very interesting thing that in the Iliad, often when people are having to make up their minds, a god appears and almost sort of infuses the human beings with with their godliness and kind of makes up their minds for them. Even there's one point in the Iliad where Athene grabs Achilles by the hair and kind of shakes his head physically to change his mind. The Odyssey is the very opposite of that, that Odysseus is clearly a man making up his own mind in his own world. And there's one point at which Odysseus compares his own heart to a sausage on a grill, <laughs> turning it and turning it in the flames, you know. And so his mind is saying, shall I do this? Shall I Shall I move this way? Shall I turn that way? And so already within Homer, you can see this, exactly what you were talking about, that transition to agency and autonomy beginning to evolve. Yeah, that, I love that chapter about the Odyssey because the Odyssey is my favorite Homeric epic. And I think it's because Odysseus is such a relatable character, even for the modern age. I think we all can feel like Odysseus at times where you're just, everything's confusing and you feel like you kind of have to use your wiles to to navigate all the changes you encounter in life. And you see Odysseus do that. Yes. And I think wiliness, it's almost a synonym for agency. You know, wiliness is exactly the mind engaging with the conditions you find yourself in and being inventive in those conditions. This this philosophical moment, there are thinkers who talk about the material world, but there are also the first lyric poets, poets who, like uh, Sappho and Archilochus and Alcaeus from the Aegean Islands, who know all about Homer, often use Homeric language, use Homeric metaphors and so on, but do not 
put the self in that epic frame, the epic frame which even the Odyssey does for Odysseus, you know, that he isn't alone in his world, you know, he's hugely accompanied. The lyric poets have almost, you could say, the self as the battlefield on which the questions of consciousness are played out. You know, if if the Iliad has the plain of Troy, Sappho has her own heart, her own heart in which these uh, storming questions are, are acted out. And so it's as if the self comes up to the surface of the culture. The self has clearly been in play. You know, Achilles has a huge self, Odysseus has a huge self, Hector and Priam, they're all uh, kind of radiantly present in those poems, but they are not the frame within which the poem is acted out. And so for Sappho, especially Sappho, the self is the drama of itself. You know, Wordsworth had this great phrase uh, in the prelude. He says, there's a grandeur in the beatings of the heart. And that notion, which of course has played itself out in any number of ways, that notion begins with these early Greeks. So the Odyssey takes place on the sea. It's just Odysseus going from harbor to harbor, getting shipwrecked. And one of the the big themes or theses in your book is that the geography of this Iron Age Greek era heavily influenced the thinking of these philosophers, writers, poets, and you call it, they had a harbor mindset. How would you describe this harbor mindset and how did it shape the thinking of these Iron Age Greeks? Yes, well, just to go back, I mean, obviously these these philosophers are not the first intellectuals that ever were. There have been huge, long, hugely powerful civilizations in the Near East, in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in Eastern Turkey with the Hittites, in Crete with the Minoans, highly sophisticated palace economies largely, dictated by uh, great kings and huge bureaucracies with uh, a very powerful fusion of worldly authority, monarchical authority, with a sense of a kind of divinely ruled cosmos with great, powerful, kingly gods. And the status of the intellectual in in all of those cultures was really subservient to power, subservient to the monarchical powers. They were officials of uh, priests and royal bureaucracies. Now, those civilizations famously all disintegrated at the end of the Bronze Age in about 1100 BC for reasons no one has really yet satisfactorily explained. Egypt, the Mesopotamian kingdoms, the Hittites, the Minoans, even the early Greek, the Mycenaeans, all fell apart at pretty well the same moment. And the Eastern Mediterranean was left as a power vacuum And as ever with the end of empires, many small, piratical, self-determining invaders, raiders, whatever you want to call them, pirates uh, came and expanded all through that world. And one of them was the uh, Phoenicians and what is now the coast of, of Lebanon, the great cities, the great what became the great trading cities of Tyre and Sidon and Byblos. And almost as their successors, these Greeks 
who have uncertain origins maybe to the north in uh, north of the Black Sea. But as their successors, the Greeks also set up trading cities on what is now the west coast of Turkey, the Aegean coast of Turkey. And these cities were, none of them had great hinterlands, great kind of fertile hinterlands. They were not like the great river civilizations of Mesopotamia or Egypt, which hugely productive of their own wealth agriculturally. These cities entirely depended for their well-being on seaborne trading. And they became great sea adventurers, you know, sailing to the far north of the Black Sea, to the far west, to the to, to what is now Spain in the Western Mediterranean, to southern Italy, to the Mediterranean islands and so on. And so there is an absolute foundation on sea journeying, on the connectedness that uh, sea trading relies on, on really the foundation of the city not being in the city itself, but in the links and connections it makes all across the adjoining sea. And so there is something kind of essentially different about a great centrally shaped empire like Egypt or or the Mesopotamians and this kind of marginal, small, unmonarchical, none of these cities had kings. Well, from time to time they had a, a tyrant, but essentially they were mercantile oligarchies. And so the whole structure of authority changes. And instead of it being I think the word is centripetal, that that everything gets sucked in towards the centre. It is. It becomes absolutely at its core centrifugal, that uh, things are, are dependent on the distant, the fluid, the connecting. And so in these cities, in these mercantile cities, you have a frame of mind, which, as you say, I call the harbour mind, which doesn't conceive itself as needing a great dominating regal force, but knows about the network, the meshwork of connections on which their life, their well-being, and I think their sense of reality comes to depend. That none of them are sort of None of them are dependent on the great gods. None of them are dependent on a kind of rigid, dominating set of ideas. All of them are interested in fluidity and change and the transformations of who we are, what the world is made of, what the cosmos is made of. And so, you know, I think it was rarely said that philosophy has a geography. People think of philosophy as something existing in this pure, immaterial sphere. But it seems absolutely clear to me that these ideas of fluidity and change as being at the heart of existence emerge from a world in which fluidity and change are the governing facts of their lives. Right. So you can see this in the Odyssey. Odysseus is described as a uh, polytropos you know, mini yes. Wade, uh, he's slippery, and then also we'll we'll see this in some of the philosophies of the pre-Socratics. And you also make the point that the Greeks, 
while they did emphasize the fluid and the change because that harbor mindset, they weren't completely fluid. They tried to find some sort of basis. And you make the point that they found a third way. They cut the difference between the the river kingdoms of Egypt and Mesopotamia, where it was very bureaucratic and stable and power-centered. And they combined that with this sort of piratical, you know, pirate-like free-for-all. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. I mean, say you could, if you think of that in a historical terms, if you think of the the, the term one, the great set-up empires and that uh, last in the Bronze Age, then the kind of anarchic, piratical moment of what people have conventionally called the Dark Ages. And then this third term emerging out of that which draws a lot on the learning and wisdom of Egypt and Mesopotamia. You know, they get mathematics, navigational skills, cosmological understanding, and even, you know, the Greeks actually take their writing, their alphabetic writing from the Phoenicians. And so you get as a third term the setting up of a new world, a new independent world, which is neither rigidly bureaucratic nor anarchically piratical, but somehow fuses that into these philosophical cities in which all the great questions are asked. It is a questioning culture rather than an answering culture. And they start to decide, you know, what is justice? What kind of law system do you need? How can you understand the essential nature of the material world? What is the relationship between identity and change? How can identity last in a fluid world? And so there is a dialogue between the making of the well-shaped thing, whatever you like to call that, temple, a city, a self, an idea, and the idea that change is absolutely at the heart of identity, paradoxically, <laughs> that our identities are essentially fluid. And that's I think that is a source of real dynamism. You don't just have, you know, pirate kings, as you do in the Iliad, it's easy to, to see those Greeks in, in, in the Iliad as, uh, or even you could see Odysseus as this, as a kind of self-determining pirate king, like a kind of terrifying Viking raider. It's much more than that. There is, people start to think of ideas of civility and sociability and the good life together. They set up the Olympic Games so that these often fiercely competing cities can meet in a non-violent meeting every four years and so on. And so there is a, a kind of lovely ambivalence permanently in play between the sort of, you could say, I think, the fighting mind, you know, the going out and getting mind, and the careful mind, the caring mind. And that tension between let's make this good and let's make this adventurous is in play in any number of spheres. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. 
Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. 
Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So continuing on with this idea that this is a period where the thinking was fluid because of that you know, harbor mindset they had. You highlight three pre-Socratic philosophers who all lived in Melitos, which was at the crossroads of all the navigation routes of the Eastern Mediterranean. You had Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes. And the question that they were all grappling with is, you know, what is existence made of? And they felt that it was a substance that you know life springs from, and then it goes back into, and then it just that's that's the process. It comes goes up and it goes back down and it comes back up. So tell us about them. Yeah. So these three early uh, Miletus thinkers all think that somehow lying behind all the variable phenomena of existence, you know, surely there is something to being which is beyond the endless little details which we're surrounded by. And Thales thinks it's water. Anaximenes thinks it's air, and Anaximander thinks it's this thing called the apeiron, which just means the undefined, either the limitless or something that you can't say what qualities it has. And in a way, this is all versions of one idea that, of course, we we now know, we recognize, don't we, that... The material world that we are and we're surrounded by is only the form that stuff is currently taking. We are all made of the stars and we will all return to the stars in the end. And so it is this idea that nothing is fixed. We are only the form that the wave of existence is currently taking. And I find that idea incredibly liberating, that you don't actually need to become almost addicted to things as they are, but you can allow, must allow even, if you're to recognize the reality of things, you must allow the wave to go on its way. And there are so many implications of that idea about the nature of birth and death. You know, I think one of those Milesian thinkers says, there's no such thing as birth or death. It is only things taking another form. And is that such a relief? <laughs> I find that a huge relief, <laughs> you know, that you you were never really born, Brett, and you will never really die. You're, the wave will simply move on. Well, another pre-Socratic philosopher you highlight who also explored, you know, metaphysics, like what is reality made of? Heraclitus, Heraclitus? Heraclitus, Heraclitus. I okay, Heraclitus. And he also thought reality is constantly changing, but he used, instead of water or fluid, he used fire. Talk about Heraclitus. Heraclitus, who, who came from a neighboring and rival city of Miletus in, in Ephesus, just to the north of there, 
And he is the most intriguing of them all. He's exceptionally difficult to understand. It's not clearly stated. And the reason, I think, is that for Heraclitus, the nature of identity, the nature of identity is at its heart self-contradictory and that the self-contradiction is the energy of things. So, I mean, that's, that's rather opaque, he said. But, um, for example, one of his analogies is that justice, and by that I think he means the good city, the good society, even the good self, is like a bow, like a bow and arrow, or like a lyre. And in a bow or a lyre, the frame of the bow and the string of, of the bow pull in opposite directions, that the bow is only a bow because the frame pulls in one way and the string pulls in another. And if either string or frame were to win out in that contest, that tension, then the bow would no longer be a bow. It would be a kind of inert bit of string and a, and a, or broken string and a bit of wood. And so that kind of the pulling together or the pulling against themselves of opposites is what Heraclitus thinks kind of life and being is. And so you can't ever really identify anything, that everything has this self-contradiction to its heart. And so I think that that is also a form of, of liberation. You know, we live in an age of extreme over-definition. And so Heraclitus provides an answer to that in a way. And he was absolutely ridiculed <laughs> for these ideas in uh, classical Greece. But I find them, you know, it's another form of freedom that if you can... If you think of an idea that you really treasure and the most enlightening and enlarging thing to do with that idea is to consider what's wrong about it, you know, what the other thing in it is. And that is a Heraclitan inheritance. No, this idea that justice or vitality in life requires that tension or competition, you see this going on in Greek culture, like the Greeks had this idea of the agon, um, yes. the competition. It is only through that competition where it's like the fire refines things and you can actually see what is good, what is virtuous. Yeah, but the, actually, I think there's no emergent term. You don't end up with a kind of purified thing that comes out of the agon or the internal self-contradiction. The process is never-ending. You never come to a moment where you can say, oh, now, now I have it. Now I've, now I've refined the silver and here's my pure coin or whatever. Famously, he says that you can't step into the same river twice because if you step into a river twice, it's not the same river anymore. It has become something else. It's other there's another river there. Well, I'm curious. 
Well, so this is interesting. So these pre-Socratic philosophers had this idea that things constantly change. There is no beginning. There is no end. How did this thinking lead to Plato? Where <laughs> Plato said, no, well, there is this, there's a form out there that is the good. And our goal is to shape ourselves to the good. So how do we go from everything's fluid to there is actually a abstract ideal out there? Well, one interesting thing that happens with this stream of thought that it begins in the in the east in in the eastern Aegean and then in its later terms moves over to the new Greek cities in in Sicily and southern Italy. And one of the philosophers, early philosophers, who made that journey was Pythagoras. He came from Samos in in the, the eastern Aegean and and went to live in in a city called Croton in in southern Italy. And the Pythagorean inheritance, who he then has followers in other cities in southern Italy, Parmenides and Zeno, leave behind this uh, absolute fluidity of that uh, first Eastern phase. And Pythagoras is the first person, for example, to conceive of a soul, of an everlasting soul. And that uh, Heraclitus would have laughed in your face if you'd said to him that there was a soul. And of course there is no soul if everything is a fire, everything is is a constant burning. But uh, Pythagoras, who is a, this is called a social and political dimension to this, that Heraclitus is definitely marginal to his own world in, in Ephesus, that uh, he won't take on any political responsibility, he won't draw up any law codes. He spends his time playing with children and beggars, the marginal, interestingly Christ-like position that he 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 won't he won't become powerful. And Pythagoras does the exact opposite: that when he arrives in southern Italy, he gathers around him a a kind of coterie of followers. Uh, he becomes like a kind of guru, shamanistic guru, disappearing for uh, weeks at a time underground, returning apparently from another world with uh, visions of, you know, the beautiful destiny that awaits the good soul in another world and begins to conceive of the purities beyond the material world, which Thales and Co. and Heraclitus wouldn't really have countenanced. And so there is a shift, a very, very deep shift in the Italian phase to an idea that through all sorts of really mystical processes, one can conceive of a good world beyond this one. And Parmenides, who is a follower of Pythagoras in a lovely little coastal town just up the coast of, of Italy from Sicily, between Sicily and, and Naples, he, in, in a great and almost impenetrably difficult to understand poem, describes a journey in which an initiate like him, someone who is deciding to engage with mystical realities, travels to the underworld, hurtles down to the underworld, and in the underworld meets the great goddess of the underworld. And she describes to him a kind of singular perfection 
a sort of beautiful, glowing, good, unaddressable world of kind of oneness where nothing changes, nothing moves, everything is one thing beyond all this chaotic multiplicity. And from that aspect of this tradition, Plato undoubtedly takes on the Parmenides with his follower Zeno, who is an extraordinary kind of uh, logician, who sort of logician, magician, you could say, who tries to explain to the Athenians, Parmenides and Zeno both go to Athens and tries to explain to the Athenians, Socrates included, about this, uh, this other world distant from the one in which we find ourselves, where all true meaning resides. And that, I think, is the beginning of, well, it's the beginning of so many things. You know, the idea of the soul, the platonic kind of good beyond, you know, of the idea of the ideas beyond this world, and that, uh, in to me, in a way, loses sight of everything that was valuable in the in the early early the, the early philosophers. It starts to, hmm, it starts to devalue the world that we're living in, and that is never anything that appeals to me. Okay, so this is interesting. So you can see the the lead up to the classical age here. So you had these yeah. early pre-Socratic philosophers. They're developing this sense of agency, this idea that we can think through problems, think through existence. Conflict was a part of that. You'd have you'd have these discussions and back and forths, and this idea that truth can be you know sussed out by looking at contradictions, for example. Yeah, and and then you have Pythagoras who comes in and says, well, the soul uh, is immortal. And Parmenides picks up on that and says, this world is the unreal world. Like reality is beyond this world. And so that's where Plato picks up. But even Plato and Aristotle, they still continued this idea of, you can call it conflict, to suss out things, right? Because that's the whole point of dialogue. What I like about this is that you you lay it out. You see how we get Plato and Aristotle, and it was because of these these Iron Age Greeks who were making that transition. And another thing you mentioned earlier, you all see during this time is the development of we'll call it manners and civility. Yes. How would you describe the Greeks or what came before the Greeks? We'll call them Homeric Greeks, the Iliad. Greeks. Yes. How would yes. you describe their approach to life and civic engagement? And then how did these Iron Age Greeks, these pre-Socratics, start changing that? Well, it, there's a very interesting way of reading the Iliad itself. Of uh, The Greeks are away from home. They're on the beach. Their shacks are kind of built up against the side of their ships. The ships themselves are now rotten. They've been there 10 years. There's no, there's no civil society there. Who is actually in charge is, it's, you know, in contention. It's difficult to know. There's a kind of terrible, angry, unplaced, mutual rivalry and hostility that every single one of them needs to be the best. 
when they go then on the kind of rampage through the battlefield, it's called the Aristeon, I think, the kind of the moment of bestness. And so it is like there is no civility there, that Agamemnon, the, the kind of the super king, the top king, can steal the uh, girls from Achilles without any sense of compunction. It's just a kind of warring, angry, disintegrated world. On the other side of the of the plain of Troy is Troy. And in Troy itself, things are extraordinarily orderly that there are men and women uh, living uh, in families together. The only women in, in the Greek camp are captives, slaves, no women with any authority there. But they have authority in Troy. They're living in well-built uh, palaces, all very well arranged. There are complicated and intricate and stable family and civic relations. And so already in the Iliad is a kind of suggestion that the warring and piratical, anarchic, mutually competitive world of the Greek warrior is in some ways a failing. It's in some ways inadequate. And so the kind of implication or the presumption there is that we've got to move beyond this. And the Iliad ends with that extraordinary scene between Priam and Achilles where they reconcile and they eat together over the body of Priam's son, Hector, who Achilles has killed in the, you know, the most extraordinary outcome of a war story that the two rival warriors end up kissing each other's hands. Achilles is called his man-slaughtering hands. Incredibly moving and beautiful thing, the most beautiful thing in Homer, I think. And so already, so if if uh, Homer's writing that or whoever we call Homer's writing that in the sort of 700, there is there the seed of the need for civility. And the question is that how do you find civility outside dominating centralized power in the way that previous civilizations had achieved it in the great cities of the Near East? And the answer to that is the evolution of a courteous culture, a kind culture, and a just culture. And so law codes. But also there's a figure called Xenophanes who lived in one of these uh, these harbour cities in a sort of double city called Colophon and Notion in what's now Western Turkey. And Xenophanes absolutely clearly says he can't stand the ancient gods. I mean, what kind of model are they? They're no model for for a courteous, civilized life. They're lying, cheating, fighting. We need to get beyond that. And in fact, for Xenophanes, Xenophanes says there is no distinction between nature and God. God is only another name for the world as it is. And so there is a kind of uh, emergent idea of cooperative civil life and it takes material form you know these cities are laid out very carefully they have council chambers right in the heart of them all of them do right next to the marketplace 
where joint decisions are made, not by everyone, but by the merchant elite. But as a kind of proto, it, I mean, it's they're not democracies. It's very tempting always to think that democratic ideas are nascent here. They're not democracies. But there is an idea that those who can decide about their own lives must. And I think it's absolutely intimate with the idea, as you were saying earlier, that selves need agency for dignity, that the, the dignified life is one in which you decide. What is the, the big takeaway you hope readers walk away with after they finish your book? I, I wanted to write this book because it is about an open frame of mind. And I hope people reading it will think there is no need to be aggressively loyal to what you think you think. Open your mind <laughs> to the possibility that you're wrong. And that's what I would love people to, to think after reading it, how, how absolutely thrilling it is that so long ago these people were thinking such civilized things. Well, Adam, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, I mean, there are there are marvelous editions of these thinkers' works. Uh, none of them wrote very much, which is very good. And so if you find a book about the pre-Socratics, their texts, then there are, there are wonderful parallel Greek and English texts published by the Harvard Loeb Library, and and many other translations, and I would go to one of them. Fantastic. Well, Adam Nicholson, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, for me too, Brett. Thank you. My guest today was Adam Nicholson. He's the author of the book, How to Be, Life Lessons from the Early Greeks. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash how to be, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we have something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay. Reminding you time to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.